Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by my co-host, the Reverend Ian Reid Rideau of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. We're back in Palmerston North, Ian. And today we're looking at uh, the Gospel of Mark again, chapter 8, verses 34 to chapter 9, 19. Welcome back. Thanks, Brent. How, how are we today? Uh, I'm I'm good. I had a bit of a nervous moment driving over today, where I had a detour off the state highway, off state highway three, uh, a detour provided for me by the transport authorities. So that was all good. We learned, we found another way. We saw another beautiful bit of our countryside. All good. Now, Ian, last week we reached the turning point in Mark's gospel. What happened? So what we see is there's a miracle where Jesus heals a blind man. Uh, and it takes him two times to heal heal the guy, and uh, then straight away after that, Jesus is asking his disciples, uh, "Who do people say that I am?" Is, this is kind of the culmination of the whole book up to this point. Who do people say that I am? They say, you know, some people are saying Elijah, some say John the Baptist has been kind of raised from the dead, uh, and then he targets them and says, who do you say, say I am? And what we see is Peter finally confessing to say that Jesus is the Christ. But they see that Jesus is the Christ, but they're not getting it yet about actually who he is. And we get, that's going to take some more time. Now, how do we uh, find out in this passage today what type of king Jesus will be? It's revealed for all of us to see, basically. Uh, so Jesus is going to head up on the mountain and we're going to see what type of uh, of person Jesus is, you know, kind of who he really is. Mm. Why is Jesus' path to glory through suffering and death? God ordained it that way. <laughs> it's not an easy, that's not an easy thing to, uh, uh, you know, kind of to explain, is it? But I, I think the, re- the reason is, is because God is revealing his very nature to the world, his real heart to the world and and what type of god he really is is he an authoritarian god a capricious god who wants to come and impose his will on all people or is he a god that is loving and gracious uh, and wants to lo- you know wants to care for people and deeply look after them mm. okay let's head into there's a lot of detail and this is the transfiguration um a bit later on there's a lot of detail so verse 34 of chapter 8 to 9 verse 1 and he called to him the crowd and with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Okay, Ian, what do we have to do then if we follow Jesus? Sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? <laughs> you, kind of, you have to deny yourself. You have to give up your very life uh, for Jesus. But that, that is what God demands, and that is what, that is what we've been created for. So, so when, when you boil it down, it's, it's not really doing anything other than what we've been created for. Uh, but as selfish human beings, it means giving up our very selves. Mm. How on earth can we save our lives by losing them? Is it, isn't that the thing that we want to hold back from God? Our very lives and say, I want to control my life. I want to be the one uh, who 
uh, says what I do and what and you know kind of how you know I define myself as a human being and all those types of things. We hold the, those things back uh, for ourselves rather than allowing God to speak into those those things. So what's the irony of the gospel here? Because that passage is full of irony, isn't it? Yeah, and, and when you when you come into the, you know, and finally understand the gospel, you see all the irony, don't you? That actually, to have something on it, to give it up, uh, to, um, you know, the, the the way that to, to success is service, you know, all those things, you know, kind of, it's, it, that's what the gospel is. It's the, it's the upside down kingdom. That's, that's why we, t- we call it that, the upside down kingdom, uh, is because it's just so counterintuitive to the way that we as human beings think. Because it's not about selfishness, it's about giving of self. Mm. Why does Jesus' suffering entail that we suffer? What's going on there? You know, you think, well, he's suffered enough. You know, what do I have to you know, suffer as well? But I, I think it's about formation, that, that we are being made to be like Jesus. Uh, and so some, some of our sin needs to be stripped away. And God uses those things to, to do that stripping away, to, to help us to lose our lives. And that doesn't mean that, that people who suffer more are more sinful or you know, need to be formed in, in, in a different way. That, that's not the case. It's that all of us need to go through a process of those things being revealed to us so that we can, we can give more of ourselves over and we can trust God more. Is this why as Christians that we, that we suffer? And even die? Are we following Jesus' pattern? I, I think so. I, I think it's, you know, if we want to live in this kingdom, uh, then we point to the king and we follow the king and we, it, we end up having to live like the king as well. But that pathway is not a bad pathway. And many people that, that work their way through suffering find glory, they find joy in those things. Mm. They actually find the opposite uh, to... Uh, kind of, you know, kind of what you would expect. They don't find despair. They actually find hope. You know, kind of things that you would never have found unless you actually walked through that suffering themselves. Was John Piper's got a book? I think is about suffering. Is it mm, the yes, the, the gift that nobody wants? Mm, mm. <laughs> you know, it's a brilliant title, isn't it? That, um, but it's just the very nature of how God has made this world and, and made us that the things that we think that are going to destroy us are actually the things that that bring us life. What do we do then to obtain real life? Well, what, what does Jesus say here? We have to give up our very selves. Uh, and if we want to you know, kind of gain the whole world he talks about there, what do we have to lose? We have to lose our lives to save it. And so it's a big call. It's a huge call. But that is what Jesus is asking us to do. Does this passage speak to those of us who are captured by alternate reality? Yeah, yes, in the sense of an alternate reality that we can either live for ourselves and and kind of you know pursue that as a pathway uh, and you kind of you know keep going down that that pathway thinking that it's going to lead to happiness thinking that that's going to lead to joy and fulfillment but it never does it just le- it ultimately just leads to hopelessness and despair doesn't it but uh, what Jesus is doing uh, is saying hey come out of that live for something real, live for something hopeful. What does Jesus say there about the kingdom of God in verse 1 of chapter 9? Yeah, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, many people have speculated about what this means. There was, some, there was a weird um, movie in the 80s uh, about... There were lots of weird movies in the 80s. <laughs> <I'm sorry. Rita. laughs> I, I, You're be... probably too young to remember them. 
Oh, I'm not that young. <laughs> Someone's baby. What was that one? Oh, Rosemary's baby. Yeah, Rosemary's that's baby. that's no. It's earlier than the eighties, isn't it? Wasn't Possibly. that the sixties? I think. Possibly. Keep talking, and I'll look it up. No, we're you know kind of the the um, you know the the Antichrist or someone was being born, and um, you know it, it was kind of a reference to this to this you know kind of uh, verse that there was a, a disciple or someone would live on and to see you know kind of the, the new messiah being born or whatever it was it it's not about that at all it's i think it's pointing forward uh, to jesus death and resurrection that that is the kingdom of power uh, kind of coming the kingdom of god is coming you know and is instigated at jesus death and resurrection 1968. Why am I not surprised it was made in 1968? <laughs> that is earlier than my time. It couldn't have been made before because that was when the um, production code was removed in Hollywood and they could make films like that. They would never have been able to make that in 19, even in 1965 or the 66. The censorship was much too tight, I there suspect. You, you didn't. You need, <laughs> this is why we need. Um, we have that wonderful in- interviewee with um, the film man, um, Terry, Terry Lindvall in the States. He, he did a podcast with us about, well, I, think, I don't think you were there. He did a podcast with me. We talked about all this. Um, yeah. So, well, I grew up in the glory of the 80s and the 90s, you know, kind of. <laughs> yeah, so did I remember the 80s and 90s. Nothing wrong with them. Um, now, uh, so when does the kingdom come or begin to come then? Yeah, we, we will see it if we keep reading on in Mark, eventually, you know, kind of. Um, so I, I think it's, it's either one of two points that Jesus is po- talking about. is either talking about the transfiguration, which is a precursor for the death and resurrection, his death and resurrection, mm-hmm. uh, and his reign in his ascension. So it's either one of those, yeah. Yes, and so the kingdom is coming before these people, before the current generation dies. Yeah. Um, so if it comes finally in AD 70, there we are there. Uh, now, uh, chapter 9, verses 2 to 13, we carry on. Are the transfiguration as glorious? And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. Interesting contrast to the words at Jesus' baptism, Mm. which are very similar. Uh, And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that at first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, what's the significance, or is there any significance, of the six days? Yeah, so it's interesting to start there in verse 2. After six days, you know, there could be a few things. One, it's kind of a time marker, and Mark is very good at doing that, in uh, kind, of, uh, kind of setting up the chronology uh, of the of the the book uh, and doing it. so it could be that mm. it could also be you know the fact that the crea- you know created 
Mm. Creation happens kind of in six days and the seventh day there's rest. And so you've got after six days, you know, kind of six days has passed and now we're into the seventh. Mm. So we're into a new Sabbath. Potentially, mm. yeah, mm. yeah. Now, what actually happens on the mountain, Rito? It's kind of odd, isn't it? Yes, to say the least. <laughs> I think Jesus' glory is being revealed here. I think that this is the whole point. Uh, and it's re- revealed to a select group. Uh, at this, you know, kind of in this time, but Jesus meets two people that are dead. That that is just weird. Moses and Elijah. Why those two? You know, kind of. I, I think that those two are significant. Uh, but you know, kind of, he's there chatting to them. Um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, like they're just there, normal, and you know, here we are up on the mountain having a chat. It's interesting. How does this passage relate back to other theophanies in the Old Testament? particularly those relating to Moses and Elijah, who were the other prophets who saw, who had encounters with God up mountains? I, I heard a theory about this, and I, I quite like I like, I quite this, like, I like your theory, yeah. 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 So when they go up the mountain, so that's Moses and Elijah separately, they, mm. don't, they don't go together. Mm. When, they, when they have their theophany, they're actually transported forward in time to this point, and they're kind of walking around going, oh, this is what's going to happen. You're going to send your son, and we're going to see it. And then they're taken back in time. You know, I know it's well. We're back to the '80s here, aren't we? Kind of back to the future, but you know, they see forward of what what God is doing, and that kind of um, recharges them and their ministries at the time. Particularly Elijah, you know, kind of recharging his ministry. Mm. And the fact that um, yes, Moses hears the voice of Yahweh, and here he hears the voice of Jesus. So again, <laughs> who is Jesus? Yeah. What's the significance of the fact that Jesus overshadowed by the glory cloud there in verse 7? What does that remind us of? Well, it sounds like the temple, doesn't it? <clears throat> yeah. You know, the, the glory of God um, kind of coming down in the form of a cloud. You know, for, well, firstly, we see that in the Exodus, but then it, more importantly, we see it at the temple, uh, Solomon's temple, comes and fills the, the, the temple and ends up well, in the Holy of Holies uh, and... You know, kind of. So, what we're seeing here, I think, is God's glory falling on this mountain. Mm-hmm. And um, in what sense is Jesus a new Moses, leading his people into a new Exodus? Well, you know, the the Exodus and Moses are all pointing forward to Jesus. You know, they're kind of a type um, that points forward to Jesus, and Jesus is the fulfilment of that type, mm. uh, particularly. And what we're seeing here, you know, kind of. Moses takes his people to the mountain to worship. He reveals God's glory there, particularly in the Ten Commandments and, and the rest of the law. And we're seeing the same thing kind of happening here with these few disciples. How does this transfiguration account point us back to the baptism of Jesus? Well, you've got the same words being said uh, by God. And you know, in, in that one, in chapter 1, it's unclear who he is. Uh, those words, but you know, clearly some people heard that. Otherwise, Mark would have been able to record it. Yes, he says, "You are my beloved son; with you, I am well pleased." In chapter one, and then this time he says, uh, "Where is it?" He says, "This is my beloved son; listen to him." Clearly, a connection between the two things, the two, the two events. Yeah. yeah, and you know what we've seen the whole time is that people outside of the story, so God and, and the and the demons and the narrator, that they all get who Jesus is, and now finally people within the story are getting that. And again, what do we hear? We hear the same word, nearly the same words, being being told to those people. Yeah. Do the words, this is my beloved son, point us back to Psalm 2 and to the whole idea of the Davidic king? Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, and 
because they're the mm. word. Are they the words used mm-hmm. in Psalm two? You know, kind of kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, lest his anger rise up against you. You know, yes. kind of. Uh, and it's such that's such an important psalm for thinking about who the Messiah is, about who Jesus is. Uh, and it's quoted a lot in the New Testament, actually, you know, kind of pointing to Jesus that he is the one that's come to rule because he is God's king. Yes, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Yes. Uh, verse 7 of Psalm 2, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So uh, there are the illustrations, there are the connections back to Psalm 2 and the Davidic king. Is there also a reference back to the beloved son? This was this was an interesting Peter Lightheart observation. Is there also a reference back to the beloved son Isaac in Genesis twenty-two too? Because um, we have another son who is um, about to be executed. Why not? Hey, <laughs> you know, kind yeah. of, no, but you know, and that, that's another type, isn't it? Mm. You know, in terms of the yeah, yeah. firstborn son mm. uh, being the one that's loved, and all the children are. are are loved, but you know, kind of particularly for for Isaac, this is the one who all the promises are going to get passed down to, and God is asking him uh, to, to to sacrifice him. But in that story, what happens? God provides a way out, pointing forward to the to the son that will actually be. Uh, harmed, kind of coming into the future, killed by his father anyway. Yeah, and while we're while we're tracing up Old Testament allusions, is there also a reference back? I wonder to Isaiah forty two one there, where Jesus is the victorious Messiah and the suffering servant. Mm, yeah, yeah. I haven't studied Isaiah for a long time, but um, you know, kind of you that that the kind of you know the songs of the suffering servant are very mm. important, aren't they, for uh, helping us think through who Jesus is, what he's come to do. Why does Peter want to make three tents or tabernacles? I think the word in Greek is tabernacles, isn't it, in verse 5. Why does, why does he want, and again, we've got lots of Old Testament allusions here with this word tabernacle. It's, it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> you, know, you kind of, hey, let's go build a tent, you know. And, and Peter's like, Peter clearly doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> you know, he's, I've got to do something. <laughs> kind of, he must have been one of those guys who just kind of speaks and, and does stuff. Um, but it seems to point back to the Festival of Booths, doesn't it? That, I, I think, I think, yeah, yeah. Where they, because the Festival of Booths, what, what they, tabernacles, Feast of Tabernacles, or Festival of Booths? Yeah. yeah so what they did yeah. was that they, the way that they celebrated, and that was at the giving of the law, mm. uh, and so it was a way of celebrating the giving of the law. And what they did was they built tents in their backyards, basically, and went and lived in the tents for a week. Yeah, well, the, the idea, I think, symbolically was that um, they lived in the clouds. Israel was to live in the clouds and tree houses, in effect, surrounded by the glory cloud of God. Here you've got uh, Jesus surrounded by a glory cloud, Peter offering to make three tents or tabernacles. Clearly, that he's thinking, probably, of the Feast of, of Tabernacles, where Israel lives symbolically, surrounded by this glory cloud of God. Oh, I wonder if there's a reference here too back to the, the tabernacle mm. surrounded by the glory cloud of God, whether that also isn't in, whether Peter realises it or not, whether that isn't in part of what he's thinking about here. Yeah, whether Peter Peter means to do that or not is another question, isn't it? Yeah. Or whether it's like, hey, you know, maybe you need somewhere to stay and, you know, kind of, and Mark, Mark and Jesus are kind of picking up on that idea of the festival of booze, you know, kind of, yeah, yeah and, and it's kind of worked its way in there. Yeah, so this passage really replays the whole of Israel's history, in effect. I, I think so, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and there's hints of, of that all the way through of uh, Israel, the Exodus, you know, kind of, the, you know, the, the temple and the tabernacle, all of those things, the law, 
uh, all of that stuff kind of playing into this. But who do we see at the very heart of all of that? It's Jesus, isn't it, and his glory. Is there a connection back to the creation account in Genesis here too, do you think? In what way? The whole sense of, um, of a new beginning, a new creation. Why not? Possibly. possibly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, you write that for Jesus, this world is like the metaverse. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I, oh, that's actually a really good analogy. I think, <laughs> it, it, but it is an analogy. Mm. Yeah, you know, in a sense that that what God does, uh, and obviously Jesus is God, is He creates a world in which He can come and enter. Yeah, you know, and that, that's what the metaverse is about, isn't it? About mm. creating worlds that you can go and enter and explore and kind of do do your thing, uh, and you know you do that as an avatar. And so Jesus okay. isn't, isn't an avatar; He's an actual person. He becomes a part of that creation. But he's here exploring that creation and he's doing it um, kind of... But his, his real existence, in some sense, is in heaven, isn't it? You know, because, because that is who he truly is. But he does enter it properly and fully as a human being. How do we see uh, Jesus revealed as God here then, as Yahweh in this passage? Well, you see it in the light. You see, you know, kind of, you know, he's just shining you know kind of who he really is this is who i really am i'm you know a shiny being because i am a part of the godhead uh and you know th- that's how god is often depicted isn't he you know kind of just what, what what's the um the hymn you know kind of in in an approachable light mm-hmm. uh, that, it's that idea isn't it that he's just so bright and so because he's because of his holiness and because of his beauty uh that we can't even get close to, to jesus uh but we can't be well close to god but we can because Jesus has become a human. Yes, and I guess also uh, if you accept the idea of Jesus as the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, um, then Jesus, I suppose, was the angel of the Lord talking to Moses and Elijah during their mountaintop experiences. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's how theologians would think about it. Why is it significant that, by the way, why is it significant that we have three witnesses to Jesus' transfiguration here? Three disciples who witness it, and the two witnesses of Elijah and Moses, thinking back to the Old Testament law and witness. Yeah. Didn't they have to have two or three witnesses yeah. To, yeah. to witness to an event? That's and that even So it's even fulfilling that, isn't it? So if you, have you got then two going backwards, back to the Old Testament prophets, right? So they're the kind of, they've come forward into the future, they've witnessed mm-hmm. what God is doing, and then they've gone back mm-hmm. as witnesses mm-hmm. to, to Israel. Mm-hmm. And then you've got three going forward, as in, you know, you kind of to the church and to God's people going forward after Jesus' death and resurrection. Very possibly. Anyway, um, I was going to mention before we carry on, Ecclesiastes was a book that was set by the rabbis to read at the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's very interesting that the, the, the central image of that is the Hebel, mist. Uh, or, or tra- transitoriness, mist. I mean, some people translate it as vanity. I think that's just an awful translation. But the idea that um, when Israel is uh, in their treehouse, surrounded by the glory cloud, what are they surrounded by? They're surrounded by mists mm. and vapor. And so there's no accident that Ecclesiastes' central image is one of mist and vapor. So the idea being your your life is like mist. A mist. Uh, it's transitory. Life is transitory and mm. passes quickly. But at the same time, you know, kind of not, not without meaning, but not because 
you give it meaning, but because God gives it meaning, you know, into, mm. in, you know, your life is meaningful and purposeful because of the God who who comes and dwells with you and in you. Yes, well, well, God's judgment eventually he he sorts all this uh, chaos out and and the transitoriness, the things that don't make sense to us under the sun, as Solomon would say, uh, do make sense when God comes to judge things. Right, verses nine to thirteen of chapter nine, and as they were coming down the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Yes. I think I read that before, didn't I? Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> I've read it twice, didn't I? Who is the Elijah referred to in the passage? Well, what they're, what they're kind of referring to is in Malachi, there's a, there's a prophecy that Elijah will come uh, and kind of set things right before the day of the Lord, you know, kind of before God comes. Uh, and he's kind of this figure, Elijah is this figure, setting, setting things right in the world. Uh, before, or at least prophesying and, and preaching, uh, before God comes and, uh, and and enters creation, and so whether that that question is instigated by Elijah showing up here or not, um, I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure. But uh, what uh, Mark is pretty clear on is that John the Baptist is that Elijah. You know, that's the very first thing that we see, and actually, Mark quotes from that Malachi passage. Mm-hmm. Uh, to say that very thing, that John the Baptist is here. He is the one preparing the way for the Lord to come. So what does the Lord Jesus say to the disciples here then? Elijah's come. They did what them to, to Elijah, what they wanted to do, which is what? Behead uh, Elijah. And, and it's interesting, Mark, that he spends so much time talking about uh, what happened to John the Baptist. Uh, and you know, kind of, it, it's a huge chunk that, that he actually takes up with that, which is which is interesting, you know, and what they did to Elijah, what they did to John the Baptist, they're going to do worse to the Messiah. How then are we called today to suffer with the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, that's what we, that's you know, following in His footsteps, you know, kind of being formed in the way of Jesus will probably involve some form of suffering. Now, that will look different uh, for Christians across different time periods, across different continents. Uh, even in different contexts, it will it looks different for each one of us. Uh, but for all of us, it means you know, saying this is a reality of the world is that uh, Satan hates God's people, and he's, he he wants to hurt and harm us, uh, and he does that. I think in different ways. Some some of that is through physical and cultural persecution, uh, but I think there's other ways he does that in in terms of uh, kind of saying to us, hey, you know, like we saw in the previous uh, uh, kind of verses that don't follow a king that is about suffering and about reformation, follow a king that is about violence and about victory and, you know, kind of the, the, the kings of this world that offer that. And so we can easily buy into that as Christians, that, that we buy into a world where we think that Jesus will give us everything that we want, uh, you know, and often that leads away from suffering, but also leads away from Jesus. Mm. 
Well, that's about our half hour, Rito. So we'll currently pick up the passage at verse 14 next time. And I think we're going to come and look at uh, chapter 9, verses 14 to 37 next time. Thank you to Rito, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. And thanks to, to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Ian, thank you so much. Thanks, Brent. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.